Hi, I'm Rick Steves. I've never been to Argentina, but I've got a feeling that after today's travel with Rick Steves, I'll be making plans to fly south. Though it's suffered some economic hardships in recent years, Argentina remains a major attraction with a European ambiance unique in Latin America. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're getting an insider's view of the south end of our hemisphere. American Robert Wright moved to Spain, but after visiting Argentina, he decided to move again to Buenos Aires. He'll fill us in on what it is about the land of the tango and the gaucho that's drawing more and more in-the-know travelers to Argentina. Coming up on today's Travel with Rick Steves. And we'll chat with one of my favorite travel writers, David Stanley. From one guidebook author to another, we'll give you a glimpse into the day-to-day life of a professional travel writer. And we're taking your calls to help you turn those travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. It's up next on Travel with Rick Steves, right after this. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. In a few minutes, we'll get an insider's guide to Buenos Aires from an American who liked Argentina so much, he moved there. And later in the hour, I'll place a call to one of my favorite travel writers to share ideas on the art and the business of researching and writing a good guidebook. But first, let's see what's on the minds of our traveling listeners at 877-333-RICK. We have Joe on the line in Houston, Texas. Yes, Rick. How are you doing? Good. Perfect. Uh, My question for you leads to a question about Sicily. We've been going to Europe about every other year for the last 20 years, and we've used a lot of your good tips all along the time. And uh, we're going to Italy for our fourth trip here in about the last 10 years. And we've seen most of the country, but have not been to Sicily. And I know it's starting to get discovered and would like some advice. Boy, that's, you're very, um, you're like me. I, I went to Italy a lot, and then I realized, you know, I better get down to Sicily and check that out, because it is the almost undiscovered Italy. Italy is the most touristed country in Europe now by any measure. It is just so popular. And uh, I guess it must be for you, too. You've gone, what, four times in the last 10 years to yeah. Italy? So you want to go down to Sicily? I went down there to research my TV script, and I've I've done a hundred different TV scripts, and I've never actually done a trip specifically to research a script. But I don't write any guidebooks to Sicily, so I had to do that. I didn't have any other excuse to go down there, and I had a very productive week just checking things out. If you are curious, um, the script for my TV show is is online at ricksteves.com, and that would give you my take on that. I found that when you go to Sicily, kind of think of it as an open jaws kind of way. You've got uh, Catania and Syracuse on one side, and you've got Palermo on the other. Right. And you can fly into either side. You can take the overnight boat, which is quite interesting and handy from Naples down to Palermo, mm-hmm. which I thought made a lot of sense. That's what I did and picked up a car in one side and dropped it at the other. Okay. You'd, be, you'd probably be glad to have your own car for that trip if you really want to explore around. I found a, the, the um, Sicily is kind of like halfway between Europe and, and uh, Africa in a lot of ways even halfway between Europe, Africa, and the Middle East. And it's got this fascinating overlay of different cultures as different uh, invaders have come through, whether they're Greeks or Vikings or Habsburgs or Normans or whatever. Uh, and it just leaves all those overlays, and, and it leaves a fascinating kind of uh, jumble to sightsee your way through. Palermo is a big, um, classically Sicilian town, I think, and I, I love Palermo, It's but it's wild and crazy and noisy. The markets are just... Uh, uh, just wonderlands, uh, and then you want to get out into the countryside, and they've got great agriturismos. These are farm farm sites in the countryside that rent out rooms. The one we filmed and stayed at, you've got the address for that on our website if you like. Uh, remember, 500 years before Christ, southern Italy was called Magna Greca, Greater Greece, and there's wonderful Greek ruins actually in southern Italy. And there's uh, uh, several wonderful sites for uh, Greek ruins that you'll see down there. There's also wonderful Roman sites. The emperor's hunting lodge was down there in the middle of Sicily, and it's got some incredible mosaics, all with the theme of hunting. And my favorite town was uh, Cefalu, C-E-F-A-L-U, I believe. Uh, the famous resort town is Taromina, which has uh, got lots of 19th century romantic kind of allure. And from there, people like to drive up or take a tour to the rim of Mount Etna, and you can actually be right up there and, and look at the hot lava. I was up there while it was the lava was trickling out, and they were just picking up wads of hot molten, molten lava and, and putting it into molds and making um, ashtrays out of, out of the lava that said, you know, souvenir from Sicily. So there's lots to see in Sicily. Okay, great. 
Does that give you some ideas? Gives me an idea. Uh, one last question. How many days do you think would be a good introduction? I think a week in Sicily would be great. Okay. I often learn from other people's itinerary ideas for the tours that they lead with no intention of right. taking those itineraries. Right. And I do that in cities and I do that in regions. Take a look at our itinerary in our tour program, in our tour section at ricksteves.com, and just kind of steal the itinerary and do it yourself. Okay, great. And uh, remember, it's, obviously, it's hot in the summer, so if you can do it off-season, you're doing yourself a huge favor. Okay, great. Well, thank you very much. Thank Keep you. doing the good work you're doing. Thanks, Joe, and we'll hope to talk to you after you enjoy Sicily. Thank you very much. Bye now. And we have Ken in Alexandria, Virginia. How are you doing? Fine, Rick. How are you? Great. What's on your mind? Um, well, um, I was recently in Paris, a two-week trip to Paris, which I enjoyed very much. I stayed at the Rue Claire at um, the Grand Hotel of Vec. You did? Uh, yes, one of your recommendations. And um, I just want to make a comment about Pascal. She was very helpful in many ways. Just for our, our listeners' benefits, uh, describe Rue Claire. It's a, it's a neighborhood in Paris that you chose. Yes, it's a neighborhood in Paris that I chose. It's near, uh, not too far from the Eiffel Tower, and um, also the Ecole Militaire, uh, which is the military school, which is the local metro stop nearby. But Rue Claire itself is um, a street, uh, well, it's, it's about three or four blocks long. It's a French market street. They have bakeries, boulangeries, and butcher shops, and t- typical French shopping. It's very charming. It has a lot of uh, charm to it. It's Restaurants, like, cafes, and so forth. It's sort of like Village France, right there in the middle yes, of Paris. Yes, uh, very much like Village France. It has oh. a, a, a lot of quaintness and a lot of charm, and yeah. it's something that is, it's, it should be experienced by everyone who goes to Paris. Yeah. And then, uh, and then you stayed in Hotel Levesque, so paint a, yes, paint a picture of that. Yes, Hotel Levesque, which was very, very nice. Um, it was very inexpensive. Yes, it's relatively inexpensive. What, what, what would it cost there for a double, by your recollection? Um, it was, eight, let's see, $87. $87. 87, 87, uh, 87 euros. Okay, so a couple of years ago that would have been $87, but right now that yeah, would... <laughs> right that, now it was, uh, it was a little over, I guess, over 100 So about $110. $110, yes. But it's still worth it compared to um, oh, some man. of the uh, other hotel prices. And, you know, you'd pay double that in London for the same amount of comfort and half oh, of the, the ambience. Oh, no question about yeah. it. So, no question about it. So Rue Claire, and then you had this Hotel Levesque, and you just were... Um, you were just fascinated by the breakfast, huh? Oh, well, <laughs> well this is the thing. The breakfast is, um, I, I like cereal for breakfast. That's what I normally eat. I like the fiber, and I just like the taste, and I like the low calories and, sure. and so forth. And unfortunately, I couldn't get it in Paris. The Parisians usually have the espresso and croissant for right. breakfast, sometimes orange juice with that, which is fine for them. Um, but that uh, you can have that once in a while. The, some of the restaurants all also offer American-style breakfasts, which are ham and eggs, and uh, American-style coffee and orange juice, which is fine too. But I found it, uh, you know, the, I couldn't have it every morning because yeah. I was there for two weeks. By so. the way, it, do you know, Ken, that there is a place called the Real McCoy, about 200 yards from that hotel, that is a little tiny grocery store of American goodies. And all no. all they do is sell Ritz crackers and graham crackers and tang and peanut butter for Americans that want. Oh, wow. So you could get your Frosted Flakes there. Okay. Well, I, I usually like a whole wheat cereal. A whole, you could get your uh, whole wheat cereal. Because uh, the American church is there, you know. Yes, I visited the American church. And you can stay after church on yeah. Sunday morning and chat with all the expatriate Americans there. Yes. I, as a matter of fact, I did. I did make a visit to the American church. Fascinating. Tell me about I that. because that's materials that is, expatriates. That's beautiful travel, to meet people from your country living in another country, going to church and hanging out and having coffee and tea afterwards. I know. And, and it, was, it was kind of refreshing to be with Americans again. Sure. Uh, and speak in the vernacular American English. Uh, it, was, yeah. it was nice. It, right. was, it was nice. So I did enjoy that. Yeah. And one other thing I wanted to mention that I enjoyed very much in Paris, you do mention it in your guidebook, but you don't emphasize it, is La Defense. I took the, uh, mm. the metro out there to the last stop. There are two stops in La Defense. La Defense is the high skyscraper office park outside of Paris. W- yes. Within Paris, they v- except for that big, ugly Montparnasse Tower, the only thing that goes higher than the church uh, domes is the Eiffel Tower, and they very carefully moderate the buildings. I don't think anybody can have more than six or seven stories. But outside of town, they have this huge office park. It's very modern. In fact, the big arch out there, you could fit the uh, Notre Dame, Notre Dame Cathedral inside it, and yes. under the arch. It's 
it's incredible. Oh, it is incredible. Yeah. And the arch is where you can go take an elevator and go out in the top. Oh, I love and that. And view yeah. the whole city of Paris, which I did. Yeah. And it was marvelous. It was wonderful. And I did walk among the buildings, the Esplanade. Yeah. And it's a fascinating, fascinating. And you're, com- um, and you're completely out of the tourism, you know? Completely out of the tourist area. That's you know, true. The Louvre yeah. is great and the, and the Ile de la Cité and all that and the Latin Quarter. But that's all cutesy stuff in a lot of ways. And you get out there and it's just no nonsense, you know, uh, today business, high-powered France. Very much so. You know, this is we're touching on some great stuff, Ken, here, because this is very important for travelers to round out their sightseeing experience. And just to go out there for half a day gives you yes. a, different, a different angle on Paris, doesn't it? Very much. And I would highly recommend it to anyone who goes to Paris. It's an easy metro ride. Yeah. Now let's get back to those breakfasts for just a minute. Yes, okay. <laughs> because you're, ta- you're asking me, these French, they have this, the croissant and the coffee, and that's all. And they don't, yes. they don't even um, spice it up with some juice normally. It's just a Normally, coffee. no. Juice is available, but they usually don't have juice. Now what no. I do, because I'm such an American, I have my little round of uh, laughing cow cheese in my room, you know, and you can buy it for two bucks for the little circle. And you take down a couple of uh, wedges to your breakfast, and then you've got your croissant or your baguette with something other than uh, marmalade. Because I just want a little protein, and they don't seem to need it. They go on sugar and caffeine in the morning. Yes. I think you've got to remember in France, anywhere, it's very easy to stock the pantry in your hotel room. And a lot of travelers like their cereal. There's nothing wrong with that. You don't need to apologize about that. And remember, hotels make a lot of money sell, charging $10 for a cup of coffee and a croissant. Oh, I know. It's a ripoff. It was $8 at the Grand Hotel and, and that's a good value. In fact, I used to know the uh, owner of the place a long, long time ago, and we had an ongoing battle, and I was always razzing her in my guidebook that she was charging too much for her breakfast. And, <laughs> and finally, she had the cheapest uh, breakfast on the street, which I was kind of thankful for. But Still, it's not that great a value. Other people like to go to the near the corner bakery or the little um, cafe, and it's etiquette. It's okay etiquette in France to go to the bakery, buy your little quiche or your little sandwich or your uh, croissant or your pan au chocolat. I love a chocolate bread thing. Mm. And then you go to the cafe, you sit down and you buy a coffee there, and you munch on the pastries you bought at the bakery, and that's okay to do. Mm-hmm. So that's that's one option, and that'll save you some money and give you a, a local clientele to enjoy. Uh, a lot of people, it's just handy to go to the downstairs in the hotel, but they're spending twice what they should for the meal. A lot of times it's included with no option, so you've got to figure that out. But if it is an option and if it is overpriced, you can either picnic in your room or go to the neighborhood cafe. Right. Oh, one thing, though, Rick, the Grand Hotel Effect has a policy. They don't allow any food in their room. Oh, is um, that right? Yes, that is, I don't know if that's a new policy, but it's, it's probably caused by wall, me. You know, everywhere, no food in the room. You're not allowed to take any food. I bet that's caused by my readers, Ken, because I tell people to do that. So that's interesting. I think right surreptitiously you could take up some fruit, oh, you fresh can, fruit. What and they really mean is, I, did. I took up some yeah. apples. They just mean don't dribble on the floor and don't. <laughs> right, kind of, yeah, you'd be very careful. It's the, it's the same thing as signs that say don't wash your clothes in the room. That really means I've got good furniture and we're not a laundromat. We don't want it hanging out the window, so you got to do it thoughtfully and low key. But you know, you're spending a lot of money each night staying in that room. I think you can bend those rules a little bit. Sure, and I, and I did to some extent, and I was very careful. Yeah. with fresh fruit and that. Ken, uh, I would love to talk to you more, but we got to keep this moving along. But will you call us again some? time? Okay, we'll do, Rick. And Thank you very much. Happy travels. Thank you. Okay, bye. bye. Robert Wright spends much of his winter taking Americans on summer tours of Europe. He's American-born and raised, but decided to move to Buenos Aires a few years ago. We'll hear his story and why Argentina has become so attractive to more and more North Americans. Coming right up on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at AA.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.
I'm Rick Steves, and this is Travel with Rick Steves. And today, travel means Argentina. We've got Robert Wright with us in our studios. And Robert uh, was born and raised in Memphis, but he lived in Spain, and he learned to speak Spanish with immersion. And with his Spanish language skills, he traveled around South America, fell in love with Argentina. He's lived the last four years in Buenos Aires, and uh, today, when he's in Argentina, Robert leads tours through Buenos Aires. Today, I'm interested in learning a little, little bit about Argentina because I just don't know anything about Argentina, and I think Robert's a good guy to get me up to speed. So, Robert, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rick, for having me. Now, South America is as big and diverse as Europe, but a lot of Americans haven't really been down there, and it's quite a mystery. You went down there just as a traveler, right? I did. Um, when I came back from Spain, I uh, came back to Seattle, and I was looking for a new place to uh, practice Spanish. So I decided to take a trip down there and see how it was. And immediately when I went to Buenos Aires, I fell in love with the city. It's very cosmopolitan. It's very European. Argentina in general is basically the most non-South American country of South America. It's basically like a little bit of Europe plopped down in South America. So all the Nazis just wanted to go there naturally, huh? Of course. And that's per- all I know about and, Argentina. And Perón said, Nazis. okay, come on. So he, is there actually something yeah. to that? Uh, there is actually, yes. Uh, they found – it's it comes and goes in the news down there from time to time. They recently were going through old immigration documents and they found a bunch of false passports where they let a bunch of German – Nazi refugees. So towards into, the end of the war, the Nazis could read the writing on the wall and they thought, where are we going to call home? Pretty much. And Perón was uh, pretty much supporting of Mussolini and Hitler. Okay. So he was a right winger. He was a right winger. And he also, but he basically sold anything that he could to anybody because he sold Argentine beef, the most famous commodity to both the United States, England, and also the Axis power. So nowadays, most people go there to look for beef, I suppose, instead of Nazis. Beef and tango. Beef and tango. Mm-hmm. Tango is kind of the rage. I know all sorts of people that actually uh, love to go to Argentina just to tune in and plug into the, the tango sort of craze. It's, it's a big movement down there. Uh, there's quite a few new classes and a lot of new styles of tango as far as music and dancing goes. How, how can something as old school as tango be cutting edge and mod? Because they just put a new twist to it. There's so many dance movements now, groups in Europe and the United States that are looking for something new. Uh, the salsa craze was a few years ago, that's sort of come and gone, and now the new thing is to inject tango into almost everything. The Japanese are big fans of tango, so we get a lot of Japanese tourists that come down there specifically just for classes. Now, tango is very, very romantic, isn't it? It is. It's a very sensual uh, experience, both musically and the dancing, as Is you it kind of like dirty dancing without touching? Uh, there's a lot of touching. Is there a lot so, of touching? So, yeah. <laughs> actually, I think dirty dancing was less touching than tango. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> so this is something that really is uh, a lively, uh, something that people are going down there for. It is. It is. And you got your beef that kind of gets your energy up. And, and then they go down there and they're surprised because of what you said. It's the big unknown for most people. They right. go down there and they think, oh, we're going to go see things like Inca temples or Aztec remains. And there's nothing. Now, you say it's the most European uh, part of South America. What does that mean? If you go to Buenos Aires, you'll see that uh, the city is laid out just like any European capital. It has a nickname of Paris of South America. It's, it's sort of a misnomer because in reality, uh, Buenos Aires is more of a, an agglomeration of every European capital. But it's designed on a grid plan. The buildings are beautiful, big. Every movement of architecture is down there. And uh, the people are European. Uh, Is that right? So there's not a lot of indigenous people in Argentina? There are very, very few. The most indigenous populations you'll find are up in the north, uh, bordering uh, Bolivia or Paraguay. So it's about like the Native American situation in the United States? Uh, Actually, probably a little worse because most of the indigenous people were either killed or died from disease and war. Sorry, so that's why there's not mm-hmm. many indigenous people there now. Exactly. And Argentina is essentially populated by Europeans. By Europeans. Uh, there was a huge immigration uh, to Argentina between 1880 and 1910, more or less. Like, Six, the, like the immigration to the United States. To the United America. States, exactly. About 60% of the immigrants were Italian, which is why we speak Spanish with an Italian accent. Is that right? And 30% would be from Spain, usually northern Spain, Galicia. And the other 10% are from other countries in Europe, British, German. But to me, Argentina has always uh, felt like a developing country with a huge gap between rich and poor, a lot of corruption that way. Yet they can build a great Paris of South America. What what gives here? Well, that's a really complicated question because it is – actually, I think Argentina is the only country on the planet who achieved first world status, lost it, 
and is now third world again. Really? Because they were very first world under Perón. Because they, they actually gave loans to England. Hmm. They had so much uh, wealth. Huh. Yeah. Now, if you're traveling, uh, what is the best season to travel in Argentina? It's south of the equator. Right. So the seasons are opposite of, of most uh, typical destinations for travel like Europe or Asia uh, or within the U.S. So, yeah, the best time to go would be maybe November, which is our spring, or hmm. March, which is our fall. All right, so it's like it's flip flopped, but the shoulder seasons are the are shoulder still seasons. the same time, the best time to go. All right, is it? I imagine Argentina is about as expensive as a European capital. Uh, not really; it's actually very cheap there, really? uh, which is why it's become such a big tourist destination right now. You can eat well without going broke. Very well, actually. What a big, a big first class, steak juicy costume. steak would be probably. You could get one at dinner for about maybe ten dollars. With, and with well, wine, with side dishes, with dessert, with coffee. In a respectable restaurant. Yes. And then you go out tango dancing. And then you go out tango dancing. Buenos Aires has a nightlife you, like you wouldn't believe. Tell me more. Uh, I mean, what, I have no idea what it's like to go out tango dancing. Okay, my wife and I want to go out to some dance club, and uh, you're, everybody's swirling around you with this uh, romantic expert tango. Uh, some. There's various levels because even there are a lot of local people that don't know how to tango that well. So there are various levels and, and the clubs have different, uh, they have their own orchestras and they have their own performance uh, type because there's many, many different styles of tango. I'm not an expert on tango. Would a tourist feel welcome? Definitely. Tourists definitely would feel welcome uh, regardless of their level of dance ability. Now, it's a European city, uh, but do you get, uh, like, uh, what, what kind of food? Is it, just, is it just knockoff European food also, or is there indigenous food that really... Quite a bit. There's no real local indigenous specialty. The uh, main food is beef. Uh, that's the basis of the diet down there. And then the other part of the diet that is so typical is Italian food. Is that right? So most of what we eat, well, I eat when I'm at home, is pizza and pasta. Because all of these Italian immigrants 100 years ago. Exactly, and they come with their recipes. Now, South America, to me, if I'm like a lot of Europhiles, I mean, we know that we've got Brazil down there and Argentina and so on. Basically, the two big countries, the dominant countries, Brazil and Argentina, mm-hmm. uh, Brazil speaks Portuguese. Yes. All, Argentina and all the other countries down there speak Spanish. Exactly. How did they come to this division between Portuguese and Spanish-speaking South America? Uh, there was actually, after Columbus discovered the New World, in 1492, a couple years later, in 1494, Spain and Portugal decided to go to the Pope, and the Pope negotiated a treaty with with both of the kings of those countries and said, hey, we're going to draw a line and divide the earth into two. And that line, anything that was east of that line, was Portuguese property. Hmm. Anything west of that line was Spanish. We're talking dividing South America. Uh, The the whole planet. The whole planet? Yeah, yeah. And he chose a Longitude, a longitude, right? That happens to cut South America. It goes right down through Brazil. And if we look at it today, Brazil is the easternmost hump of South America. That's what that line cut off. Exactly. And the Pope said Portuguese. Portuguese. They speak Portuguese today. mm -hmm, Today. That's it. Exactly. And then everything to the west of that line, Espanol. Spanish. Yeah. Actually, the Portuguese were very um, glad to have that agreement because they had their eyes set on Africa and finding a real way to India. Oh, and that got the whole Vasco da Gama thing going. Exactly. Wow. Hey, uh, when you're in South America now, you use uh, Buenos Aires as your your home base. I would imagine Mm -hmm. everybody starts their trip there. But is the rest of it just like ranches and uh, poor villages and uh, former rainforests that now are just vacant fields with their topsoil being washed away? Or what's the story in the countryside of Argentina? Well, the countryside is actually quite varied. It's such a long country. It's probably about as, as tall as Canada is wide. So if you imagine all of the zones that you've got going through from the from the latitudes you've got, there's desert in the north. Uh, you've got a little bit of rainforest up there as well. As you go down toward the south, you've got the Andes Mountains and beautiful wine country. All of the area around Buenos Aires is, are the pampas or the grasslands, basically like the Midwest in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And then as you go south, it's all Patagonia, which is the uh, glaciers desert. It's It's cool desert, not hot desert. And uh, islands down at the end of the earth, Tierra so, del Fuego. As tall as Canada is wide, mm-hmm. do you fly from point to point for a typical tourist? You have to. You have to. Yeah. There, there are options. Uh, there's a very cheap and economic option, which is taking an overnight bus to certain destinations, but they are very long. For example, a trip from Buenos Aires to, to Mendoza, which is in the Andes, is about 14 hours overnight. So flying would actually be a much more... 
um, an easier option for a tourist who has limited time. And reasonable money, or is it very expensive to fly? Actually, they charge a surcharge if you're not Argentinian huh. to take flights. But the surcharge is only about 10%. That's nothing. So, so it's still okay. Because the economy, the exchange rate is 3 to 1 in, in the favor of the dollar. So it's 3 pesos to $1. And prices accordingly are very, uh, are very cheap, actually. So actually, our dollar, wounded and, and weak as it is in most of the rich world, it's still pretty strong. It's still very strong. They have had a stable exchange rate since 2003, more or less. Stable mean tied to the dollar? No, stable is in the central bank tries to keep it at three to one. Three to one. So they, they buy dollars, they sell dollars. So they haven't. The dollar has fallen like thirty percent on all the other mm -hmm. currencies in Argentina because they just love America. Oh uh, yeah, they do. <laughs> they tied it to us. Well, that was nice of them. So when you, all of my European friends come to the states and it's just shopping city, you know, it's like supermarket sweep. It's like pay Painless. For mm -hmm. you, it's no big deal. You come here and it's... Uh... Well, actually, it is. It, it takes me a while to get used to how expensive things are for me compared to prices down there. But there are a lot of things that I can't get down there that I do like to purchase here, such as electronics. So um, electronics in America would be cheaper for you? In they Asia. would be cheaper and they would be available because there's such high duties on imported goods that... It it's, makes it out of reach. I'm talking, by the way, to Robert Wright. He's a friend of mine who helps update my guidebooks to Spain and Portugal. He is one of our guides through Spain and Portugal, and he fell in love with Argentina, and that's where he's called home for the last four years. Robert, uh, when people go down there, they might be thinking of uh, fun on a ranch or fun in the sun on a beach. What's the ranch scene and what's the beach scene? The ranch scene is, is a very popular tourist thing to do because uh, the gauchos or the cowboys uh, have their own tricks. They have their own style of running a ranch that's very different from what Americans might think of in Texas, for example. How? Uh, it's very different because they do, um, they're very much more involved with the cattle and they have their own competitions between the ranch hands and the cowboys. There's one of the most famous competitions where they hang a ring from a ribbon across a big metal rod and they gallop at full speed with a short little uh, silver stick and their ideas to, to to get the get the ring, so it's like a whole different twist on a rodeo or some kind mm -hmm. of. Uh, and is this a, like a entertain a big entertainment event? It is actually. There locals, are lots of tourists. yeah locals and tourists. They actually have a gaucho expo almost set up within the city limits in one of the neighborhoods. Oh, Buenos Aires. Mm -hmm. It's a big folkloric like, festival. Can you find these gaucho shows in any sizable town? You can. You can. You can it's one of the fundamentals of the economy. Sure. All right, Robert. Tell me about the beach scene in Argentina. Uh, the beach scene is actually very popular among locals and tourists because Buenos Aires is located on a river instead of on the ocean. You have to go south a few hours just to get to the beach. Uh, beaches are very, very nice. Are there resorts like, you know, Americans will go down to Cancun or Mazatlan. Do you have the equivalent? Very much south so. Of the very much so because uh, actually January mm -hmm. is the big vacation month, just like August is the vacation month in Europe. So everyone leaves Buenos Aires and they go to the beaches. Wow. What's the population of Argentina, basically? Argentina is about 38 million people, and a little less in, than Spain. And how many of those in Buenos Aires? Uh, a third. So wow. we, we have a city of 13 million people. That is big. Mm -hmm. It's huge. Now, but, is it this nightmarish, uh, developing world uh, megapolis? Actually, it's not. That's what surprises that most people. That scares me, frankly. It's what surprises most people because... 13 million. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's a huge urban area, and... You've got a lot of people that come from the suburbs and they work in the city center and then they leave every day. However, it never feels crowded. Huh. I've been to Mexico City before, which is double the population of Buenos Aires, and it always felt cramped to me. But Buenos Aires, you feel... Are you safe on the streets very, as a tourist? Very much so. Uh, there's been a big... Uh, there's, there's been a lot of information in the news about kidnappings and how it's not safe to go down there, but that's really not quite true because for the average tourist... It's perfectly fine. Now, a lot of Americans probably confuse Carnival, which is a Brazilian thing, right, mm -hmm. uh, with Argentina. Do you have anything like Carnival? We actually do. Um, it's making a comeback. Carnival used to be a big thing in Argentina. Um, in, after the military dictatorship of the seven, late 70s, early 80s, they outlawed Carnival. But it's making a comeback. There's a city so north. So the military just didn't like all that? They didn't, no, because people are out of control. Right? So, Tough to keep them. There is one city north of Buenos Aires that has their own carnival, and it's a huge event. I feel like my attraction to Europe is because of the rich history there. And my concern if I go down to S South America is, as you said, there's almost no indigenous people there. This is all newly transplanted Europeans with a heritage that goes back to the 1800s. Basically, not a lot of history. Is that true? Uh, not quite, because Buenos Aires was founded 
for the first time in the 1530s. So it's actually, it's a city that has 400 years of history. Uh, and it really, it was... Actually has a little old town? Um, not quite, no. Because all of the, the oldest building in town is from the from 1720. It's that's a Jesuit church. It's older than anything in my town. Well, that's true. <laughs> now, you do tours of Argentina, of, of Buenos Aires, Of actually. Buenos Aires, you yes. You do walking tours. Walking tours, because there's been a huge boom of tourism in Buenos Aires, well, in Argentina in general, and a lot of people think that in three days they can see all of Buenos Aires. We've already talked about how it's 13 million people, and it's got 400 years of history. I don't know how people can assume that they're going to see really everything in just three days. So, do you give people a walk or do you take them on public transit? or what? I do everything. I take them on public transit. We use buses. We use subway. Uh, we also walk a lot and we go to neighborhoods that are off the beaten path. So an intimate walk through a neighborhood, a cultural scavenger hunt kind of thing. Uh, yes, and also architectural walks like Art Nouveau. A lot of people think that there's no Art Nouveau and I take them on a four-hour walk. Now, is it complicated to, to be an uh, independent tour guide in Argentina? Do you just hang out your shingle or do you have to be licensed and all this sort of thing? I believe that the law says you have to be licensed, but because everyone is making so much money now off of tourism, they sort of let anybody do what they want. So it's boom time for tourists in Argentina. It is. It's, it is. When I first went there in 2000, there was no infrastructure set up for tourism, and now it's amazing. Wow. And the wine? Do you have some? I've heard there's, you know, we drink Argentinian wine here. Do people go for the wine in Argentina? I'm glad that it's coming up here because it's some of the best wine ever. The, um, the wine country is in Mendoza, which is the foothills of the Andes Mountains. And it's everybody, basically in the U.S. has heard of Chilean wine. But Argentina is now beginning to export their wine because of the three to one ratio of the dollar peso that we've been talking about. And so exports are very favorable for other people. They're finding that the quality is great. The, the, there's one variety that Argentina is known for, which is Malbec. And it is a French grape. And they planted it there way back when. And it's done great. And it's sort of the emblem of, of the Argentina wine industry. Wow. Now, you're an expat uh, American, moved into Argentina, living and working there. Sounds like you're interested in staying there for a while. I'll probably be there for a very long time. Are you accepted by the local people? Very much so. Uh, it helps I that I speak Spanish. Everybody's that, immigrants too, aren't they? Are exactly, you? exactly. And that, that leads to a lot of tolerance for people to come there, especially for tourism. Uh, people are very happy to see people from other countries come and visit because they love showing off. Argentines love to show off. In my neighborhood, which is one of the fancier neighborhoods in town, there are women that wear fur coats just to go to the grocery store. I'm not kidding. <laughs> Sounds fascinating. Well, Argentina, boy, you've got your tango, you got your beef, you got your gaucho shows, you got uh, reasonable expenses, mm -hmm. you got your uh, summer in the winter. Exactly. And you got tour guides like Robert Wright. Robert, you've got a website, I would imagine, that explains your tours and so on? I do. It's uh, www.indepth.com.ar because it's hosted in Argentina. .com.ar. www.indepth.com.ar. We'll have Robert's website at our website, as we always do with all of our interviews, at ricksteves.com. Roberto, thank you very much for joining us and giving us an insight into a place that I'm going to put on my list of uh, destinations to visit, Argentina. Por favor, gracias a vos. You're listening to Travel with Rick Steves. Sono Cecilia Bottai, produco vini di qualità in Italia e stiamo viaggiando con Rick Steves. And that's the Italian for I am Cecilia Bottai, I make fine wines in Italy and we are traveling with Rick Steves. Sono Cecilia Bottai, produco vini di qualità in Italia e stiamo viaggiando con Rick Steves. <laughs> I'm Rick Steves, and this is Travel with Rick Steves. And I've been writing guidebooks since 1980, and I'm talking with a man who's been writing guidebooks, I think, at least that long. And uh, I'm just looking forward to connecting with David Stanley, who writes the Moon Guidebook to South Pacific and many other fine guidebooks. I've got David Stanley on the line, who now lives in Nanaimo on Vancouver Island. David, how are you doing? Fine, Rick. How are you? Great. It's nice to connect with you. And let's just talk uh, with our listeners about travel writing a little bit. When did you write your first travel guidebook? Well, I, I beat you by one year. It was published in 1979. All right. And who so, was that with? Yeah, that was with Bill Dalton. Actually, it was it, today the Moon Handbook series has over 100 titles, and uh, my South Pacific book was number two. And Bill, Bill's original Indonesia handbook um, when I when I visited Indonesia myself back in the late 1970s, I used his guide in Indonesia, 
and I sent him a series of letters with updates and comments on his book, and he wrote back, and we started corresponding. And then I told him, next year I'm going to the South Pacific, and do you want to... uh, put some notes about the South Pacific in your Indonesia book. He said, no, it's too big already. And so we did a special book just on the South Pacific. And how did it do? It it did fine. And now we're, we, the eighth edition came out last November. Good for you. So this book has actually evolved over the last 25 years in eight editions. Yes. So a new, a new edition about every three years. Yes. You know, I met Bill Dalton way back then, too. Bill Dalton's one of the, uh, you know, of course we know Arthur Fromer, and there's the whole generation from that age, the Birnbaum, Fielding, Fodor, uh, and uh, the classic travel writers. And uh, they've sort of trailblazed the, the the way for us. And then this, your generation and my generation, came along with the Lonely Planet guidebooks and Bill Dalton's Indonesia and my uh, Europe guidebooks. And I know that... Um, I was uh, self-published back in the 19, early 1980s, and I went to Bill Dalton's home in Chico, California. Ah, yes. And he let me sleep in his garage, and he let me go through his whole Rolodex, and he was helping me get started, and I had my Europe Through the Back Door book, but it was self-published. And he offered me to get uh, distributed by your distributor. I forget who it was, but they were really good on the Pacific Rim, but he said, frankly, it won't help you in America. But I remember back then, David Stanley did South Pacific, Bill Dalton did Indonesia, and then there was Tony Wheeler and his rising uh, company with Lonely Planet, who started off with South Asia on a Southeast Asia on a shoestring. Is that right? That's right. That's right. Actually, Bill Dalton and Tony Wheeler started almost the same time. Um, they were actually both based in Singapore in the YMCA in Singapore at almost the same time, and I think Bill was actually before Tony, right. because Bill's first guidebook was actually a five-page collection of notes which he mimeographed stapled together and he sold them at flea markets in in asia in in australia in australia because he went for he he went down from singapore well actually he first was selling these things in the flea markets in sydney and then he he moved back to singapore to update his indonesia book and so actually bill claims that tony wheeler got the idea from him Now, I don't know if that's true. Probably Tony wouldn't agree with that, (laughs) but that's Bill's story. But there's probably a stapled together very first Tony Wheeler guide to Southeast Asia somewhere. Probably. I don't know. I haven't seen it. Uh, Probably if you have one of Bill's early ones, it's probably worth something now. I've never seen one. But if somebody can get one, that's probably worth something today. Yeah. Well, right now, Lonely Planet covers the entire world. I think they're probably the dominant travel um, publisher, Australian-based, and uh, wonderful guidebooks. And they do guidebooks to any place. I mean, if there's yes. 50 people that go there, they're going to do a guidebook to it, whether it sells 10 or 10,000. They feel like they need to cover the world. Yes. And, of course, uh, Bill Dalton's uh, series, Moon, which you're part of, uh, has uh, risen up to compete, really, with Lonely Planet. And you cover most of the same territory. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, I wrote the first three editions of Lonely Planet's Guide to Eastern Europe. So I've worked for Lonely Planet, too. You have. I am um, the also, was also the author of the first two editions of Lonely Planet's Guide to Cuba. Really? Yes. And so I, I and actually, if you go in, in the bookstore now and look for Lonely Planet's Guide to Canada's Maritime Provinces, you'll see my name on the cover of that one, too. So you've you've done a lot more than just the South Pacific. Now, when you're traveling the South Pacific, your guidebook is. Do you have any direct competition for sales on South Pacific? Yes, unfortunately, you know, Lonely Planet is my competitor. Right now, I was there well before Lonely Planet. Like uh, Lonely, I've been doing this since 1979. The first Lonely Planet guide came out in 1986 in the South Pacific. I think they had a guide to Tahiti in right. 1986, and. Uh, since then, they've been able to um, churn out a lot of books. You know, um, Lonely Planet operates totally differently than Moon. Um, Lonely Planet is owned by Tony Wheeler still today. It's a private company. He and his wife and a few other business partners own the company. They own all the books. They own all the copyrights. The writers are just assigned as writers for hire to go out and write those guides. Moon is still... We authors own our own copyrights to our books, and we are paid royalties, right. whereas the Lonely Planet people are paid fees. So as soon as a book is published by Lonely Planet, the author is finished. He's out the door. He has no more say or any... They, the book could sell a million copies. He would still only collect his basic fee, whereas with Moon, um, we 
have an ongoing interest in the books because we own the copyrights ourselves. That's uh, how, how do you, if you were a consumer and you're trying to assess guidebooks and publishers, how, what kind of impact does that have on the quality of a book? Well, it's, you know, it's just like I've been writing about the South Pacific since 1979. So I don't make many mistakes anymore because I know, I know the area backward and forward. Um, whereas if they send in they like to send in their office staff who they can easily control. So if they send in a secretary or or a uh, map maker or somebody from their, their in-house staff to update a guide, that person is likely to miss a lot of important points and they can't evaluate the thing the same way somebody who has been there going there, you know, dozens of times. And who has their name on the title. I mean, you've exactly. got your... Now, when you're traveling, uh, I'm talking with David Stanley, by the way, the the author of The Moon Handbook to the South Pacific. I, to me, it must be just the, the classic coverage of the South Pacific. It's a thousand-page tome covering all the fascinating corners of this watery continent that stretches... Uh, what is it? There's 7,000 islands in the South Pacific? Oh, it depends what you count as an <laughs> island. Um, for an island to be inhabited, it has to have an, a water supply. And a lot of islands are, especially the coral islands, the, the rainfall goes right into the ground and, and okay. it's gone. Now, Bill, when you travel, do you meet people who are using your guidebook? Yes, I do. But you know something, Rick? I travel incognito. I don't um, accept hospitality from travel agencies or hotel chains or restaurants. I try, and, and, you know, if somebody says to me, hey, you, you look like the guy who wrote that book, I will actually deny it because these islands are very small, and as soon as they know who you are and what you're doing, you, you lose the natural response of the people. Wow. I can I relate to that, to David. I try to keep incognito when I'm down there researching my so, books. So you got a small island with just 20,000 people on it or something, and there's 10 or 15 restaurants. Boy, once they know you're on the island, uh, it's exactly, hard to... It's, exactly. It, it isn't the same anymore. And, and you know, it. I'm pretty frank in my book. Huh? If some place isn't up to par, I'll say so. And... You know, if they find out that I'm there, I could have some problems. Oh, yeah. I've been, I've called towns in Norway painfully in need of charm, and then I go to the place to update it, and the tourist information folks read the little chapter and says, oh, painfully in need of charm. And I, ha- <laughs> right. I take a lot of heat from them in that regard. But uh, I know what you mean. You know, it's just a lot of people, when you write a guidebook, they think you're like paid advertising, and you owe them a complimentary write-up. And no, we are the hired hands of our the people who buy our books. And, exactly, and, and we exactly. need to give Especially people... Especially with the Moon series, because we are only earning um, royalties on actual sales. We don't collect any fees, and I don't take any freebies from these people. So, you know, we have to give our readers the real facts. Of right. course, we have to be careful, you know, not to unfairly criticize people. Sure. Um, so it is, there is a little bit of a balancing act. To do. But you have a serious obligation not to get a nice free dinner and write that place up exactly. complimentary necessarily. Yeah. You know, it's a sad trend that guidebook writers these days are being uh, doing piecework, being paid a, a fee to do an update, and then they have no more connection with that book in the future. I, I have a feeling some publishers think that's easier to manage. They don't have a personality. They don't have a, a well-paid, famous guy with his name on the cover. And uh, the, consequently, uh, they might save a little money in the short term, but I don't think it's good for the quality of the guidebook in the long term. You're quite right about that. I'm thankful that I'm writing, uh, like you are, uh, for royalties rather than for a a set fee, and I hope that we can uh, continue to bring our our readers good quality information. Right. David Stanley, author of The Moon Guidebook to South Pacific, thank you so much for joining us, and best wishes with your work. Well, thank you, Rick, and good luck with your work. Okay, bye now. Bye. You're listening to our weekly journey on public radio. We call it Travel with Rick Steves. 877-333-RICK or email us at radio at ricksteves.com. We have Nick on the line from uh, State College, Pennsylvania. Hi, Rick. How are you doing? It is a distinct pleasure to talk to you. I tell you, you really jump-started our, uh, our little family into to traveling overseas, and, and we really have the bug now. Good for you. Well, that's, that's, that's so good to hear. I just think it's so great when families can travel. It just has a huge impact on the kids, I think. Yeah, we have an 8-year-old, and she just we took her to London and Paris and, and Chamonix a couple of years ago. And, and now we're turning our attention to Italy, and, and uh, obviously it's a huge country, and we're trying to take a, a, a real big bite of a big country in a short period of time. Right. And we're starting in Venice, and we're going to stay in Treviso, 
renting a car and going through the Tuscany region, and I'm kind of looking for a couple of tips on our way through towards Rome. What, what? I mean, obviously the big cities, and I've looked at your, you know, on your itinerary online, but I mean, I, I know obviously we don't have enough time because we only have about four days when we travel through there. So. What are the things we should be looking for? So, in other words, you've got your Venice time, then you've got your small-town Tuscany time, and you've got your Rome time? Correct, yeah. And, and we're really looking for, you know, obviously Siena, and we'd like to stop in Florence for a day, yeah. but is there something, you know, we like the little towns, the places yeah. that, you know, are really off the beaten path a little bit. And you've got four days to get from Venice to Rome? Correct. You're picking up a car as you leave Venice or yes. Treviso? Yes. Okay, well, remember, the shortest distance between any two points in Italy or anywhere in Europe is the Autobahn, or in Italy, what would they call it, the Autostrada. Mm-hmm. Pay the fee. I think it's a dollar for every five minutes or a dollar for every six minutes when you're flying along at 100 miles an hour, you know, but pay the fee to go on that Autobahn if you want to get uh, where you want to get in a hurry. Mm-hmm. And then, so you want to go, for instance, on the freeway right down to Florence. When I, given your ridiculously short amount of time, <laughs> and you're, you want it, like most Americans, to see too much, which oh, yeah. I, I would be just like you, especially if I had a family to try to expose to all this great stuff. I would leave Venice very early, and I'd get to Florence. I'd pay to park in a garage, mm-hmm. just just you know, pay the ransom, and give yourself 10 hours in Florence. And okay. just, you know, do the Renaissance, we call it the Renaissance Walk. And you can see David, and, uh, you know, you can uh, see the Duomo, and... Uh, um, you can have your gelato, and you can get to the Arno River and the Ponte Vecchio. It's just a wonderful one. One day in Florence is not insane if you're well organized. Just don't spend time in lines. You can okay. make reservations for the sites with email or telephone in, days in advance, mm-hmm. and then you'll feel very smug as you walk by 300-yard long line of hot, sweaty, bored, frustrated tourists with your family. Go right up to the turnstile, and they say, "What's your name?" And you give them their name and your confirmation number, and they let you in. Remember, when you see these long lines in Italy, generally they're not waiting to get into the museum. They're waiting to buy a ticket. Right. And you can arrange that ticket in advance if you're on the ball. Um, So any good guidebook uh, would give you the advice on that. So if you're assuming you got four days to get to Rome, I would just leave Venice early and, and spend as much time as you can in Florence, but don't sleep there. Okay. And then that night, I think I would get to Siena. And uh, that's not ridiculous. We've done that with tour groups before, and it actually works if you're well-organized. You get to Siena, and then you want two nights and one day in Siena. Okay. Okay. And so that, and then I would give yourself two days after that. The two nights and one day in Siena is just a, uh, an ability to feel situated. I, I don't like a series of one-night stands if I can avoid it. Right. So I would stretch one day to get there in order to have that luxury of being situated and not unpacking. I'm in the hotel two nights in a row. It's great. First night I'm getting oriented. Next night I feel like I've been there for a while. Right. you got a whole interrupt, uninterrupted day with your family. When I was in Siena, it's got that great Campo Square. Remember where the Palio is? Mm-hmm. Sit yes. there, have a glass of wine or a coffee with your travel partner. If your kids are getting on your nerves, ask them to run around the square and you'll time them. It takes them about five minutes to go around, and they say, that was pretty good. Do it again. Yeah. And it's a great way to get, get, get the energy out of those kids. And um, if, when you're in Siena, you won't be there for the palio. That's that wild, no-holds-barred uh, donkey race or you know horse race around the square. But you can go to a little theater there just a few blocks off the main square and watch a video of it, which is oh, quite breathtaking. And it's the uh, easy way to actually get a sense for the palio. Then early the next morning, you're going to have your countryside experience. And this is really important because right now all you've had is intense big city stuff. Venice, Florence, Siena, Rome. You want to really get into the uh, cypress trees and the olive oil uh, you know, makers and the winery kind of stuff and get a good guidebook. My, any guidebook would cover, give you good options around there. But I would say make a point not to go to famous sites during those two days, but just tool around the countryside and get a sense of the slice of earth, a slice of life kind of rural countryside. What about Pisa? Is it worth it or is it... Uh... No. not on, If you've got four days, you wouldn't want to go to Pisa. Look at a postcard okay. and you've seen it. <laughs> okay. okay. Because, I mean, you go there and you go through... It takes a lot of time and it is exactly what it looks like. It's Unless you're an art historian, it's it's really not that big a deal. I was just there a couple months ago and, you know, it's good. But if you've got four days, it just absolutely does not make the cut because what you want is Mona Lisa's backyard. Right. I mean, think about Mona Lisa's backyard. Look at Mona Lisa in the backyard. That's what inspired uh, Leonardo. Right. And you can find that when you just tool around the countryside outside of Siena. Now, if you were, if you had the money and you wanted to hire a private guide for a few days to show you the countryside, that's I might consider doing that myself. Mm-hmm. Also, a great experience would be to have a well-chosen agriturismo, one of these countryside farms that are just over the top now in Green Acres kind of luxury. Mm-hmm. And they would have swimming pools, great for kids. And they would have a farm where they make the cheese and the pro- and the ham right there, 
and uh, you get to you know get to know the family, and uh, you, you just get a, a real good feeling for the the rural charm of Italy. And then you come into Florence or into Rome, mm-hmm. and you got to drop your car in Rome, right? Yes, absolutely. Good luck. <laughs> no, it's, come on. Well, you, you might. Uh, th- this is interesting. Do a little homework to find out where you can drop your car. Perhaps you can drop it at the airport if there's no extra fee, but find out if there is an extra fee. I think we're doing that. I think my wife has Good. it arranged. Because from the airport, you've got a shuttle train that leaves four times an hour, right, taking you right downtown. And okay. it wouldn't cost very much at all, and that might be a good idea. If you're, if you're, you know, gamey with, if you feel comfortable driving in a big city in Italy, you know, you can you could drive right downtown. If you happen to be arriving on a weekend or late at night or something like that, that would work also. Okay. I think I might arrive late at night if you're having fun in the countryside. Now, additionally, this is my second question, and this will wrap it up. Now we're in Rome for five days. Uh, we've read yes and no on Pompeii. Is it worth going down there? I understand it takes a, a good amount of time in the train yeah. to get there. It'll take you three or four hours to get down to Pompeii from Rome. It can be done, and a lot of people do it, and they're happy they did. But I would remind you that Ostia Antica is just a subway ride from downtown Rome. That was the ancient seaport of Rome that silted up in the same general time as Pompeii was destroyed by the volcano. Okay. And they've unearthed that in modern times, and it gives us a look that rivals Pompeii at what ancient Rome was all about, and it's just half an hour from downtown Rome. Okay. I think it's one of the most underrated sites in all of Europe. And if you have my Rome guidebook, you'll have a good coverage of Ostia. But just remember Ostia Antica, the ancient seaport of Rome, and that will give you your all of your Pompeii thrills. This is fantastic. Rick, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. I, I, can't, I, I hope I run into you someday out there. Well, let us know how your trip goes. I will. Okay, thanks a lot. Thanks, Rick. Bye now. Bye-bye. We're looking for your original haiku poems, sound effects, or a short essay on where you live. Look in the 15 Seconds of Fame section of our website at ricksteves.com. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more online in the radio section at ricksteves.com, where you can look up information on this and other programs in this series. Join us next time as we travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.